We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes Justice Special possible. This season of Justice Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I've mentioned before on our podcast what an amazing support our home coordinator, Nicole Barnett, has been to my family on our foster care journey. Yes, tell us a little bit more. What does that look like for you all? Well, Nicole and I actually got the chance to sit down and chat about her role. So I'll let you hear from Nicole herself. So my role as a home coordinator, it can be so many things. I wear many hats. Part of my job is to make sure that the foster parents are following state and county rules, also to be a support. So be that shoulder to cry on, be the sounding board when foster care gets really rough, which it does, um, when the kids are making me crazy, or even just be there to encourage and support in whatever way I can, letting you know you guys are doing an amazing job. Filing all the fun paperwork, keeping files on the kids, finding those resources for kids when they need certain and specific things, whether it's therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and extracurriculars too. That's important as a kid to have sports to play or gymnastics or arts and crafts, things like that. I think the big thing that resonates with me is So our founder, Jan, something her and her husband would say was, keep your eye on the child if everything else will fall into place. And that is kind of how I see my role is you as the foster parent, keep your eye on the kid and I will make sure everything else is covered. It's great to hear that we have people like Nicole supporting kids in care and their families. I couldn't agree more with you. And Nicole has even physically shown up at our home during difficult times. And she's just been an incredible support. Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you. We're not your traditional family. I mean, it's not every day that, you know, two lesbians adopt a gay kid. (laughs) They truly came at a point in my life where I was, I had given up. You know, I was like, you know what, like nobody wants me and it is what it is. Um, and then they came into my life. Um, you know, even after they did the full disclosure, God knows I was a interesting child. <laughs> you know, they still wanted me. So, you know, it was a process. You know, I think I felt very lost when I moved in because I had been trying to navigate this balance of being out while trying to not sabotage having somewhere to live with people. I think at foster care, I really felt like I had to minimize who I was to be able to make sure I could stay somewhere. Being a part of a forever family, you know, that was scary. Opening yourself up to the possibility of either being really loved or being really let down again. And so that was really where my hesitation came in. Ultimately, obviously, I made the choice to have the family, but it was not an easy one. Um, And in the beginning, you know, our relationships were tested. Welcome to Just a Special, the place to learn more about foster care from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster mom. And I'm Rachel, a mentor to kids in care. So Rachel, something I recently learned is that LGBTQ plus kids are actually more than twice as likely as other kids to end up in foster care. And currently 11 states permit state licensed child welfare agencies to refuse to place and provide services to children and families, including LGBTQ plus people and same sex couples, if doing so conflicts with their religious beliefs. This can be so harmful. 
Even in situations where discrimination isn't allowed by law, that doesn't mean it isn't happening. Today, we get to see this play out through the eyes of someone who's lived it. So that's right. Today's guest is Diamond Kobolinski. He's 20 years old and the type of person who pays for the person behind him every single time he goes to Starbucks. And Diamond is a former youth in care and the current founder and CEO of Hope for Colorado Inc., which is a nonprofit organization really focused on creating a safety net for youth who've aged out of the system and never found a family. Diamond has said that growing up as a gay kid in foster care made his life extra intense. And he was placed in foster care at two and a half years old and lived in 30 different placements and continued to experience abuse while in the foster care system. At the age of 17, Diamond was adopted by a family of two moms, and they were able to find a lot of common ground right away and have really continued to do so over the years. You know, me and my moms are very similar in the sense, I think a little bit of our backgrounds. Jessica has definitely, you know, witnessed a lot of different family issues in her life. Amy, I think it's a little bit different. You know, she's witnessed a lot of divorce and things. She's seen, you know, abuse and things in other parts of her life. Where we came from and where we're headed is where we're very similar. We all do jobs that help marginalized populations. Amy was working at the Pueblo State Mental Hospital with people who are not guilty by reason of insanity. Jessica works with people who are living with HIV and AIDS. I work with youth who age out of the Colorado foster care system. Um, so, you know, we've all been very, you know, social work sort of people. We like to see the direct result of what we do. So I think we're very similar in that sense, as we like to take our experiences and work through them and then use those to better the lives of others. I've always been really proud of them. Like, they, they're both very strong, very independent women, um, you know, and I, I've always admired that. As you can hear, we have a lot to dive into with Diamond. So buckle up and let's get right into it. Diamond and I started off talking about how his mama and mom see him. So Amy is mama, um, and we just decided that because mama's a little more masculine. She, you know, doesn't wear dresses. Um, you know, she knows her way. She knows how to use a hammer. <laughs> I think my mama would probably describe me as a very vibrant, um, you know, a very outgoing person. Um, definitely someone who's very confident and, you know, not afraid to express who they are. Um, and Jessica's mom. Um, and that's just because I think mom naturally comes with the more, um, you know, more tender, more, a little more nurturing side of things, um, you know, where she wears dresses and will go get pedicures. You know, I think my mom would probably describe me a little bit differently. Um, you know, I think depending on the parent, you see a little bit different sides of your kids. I think my mom would probably describe me as a very motivated, um, you know, very hardworking person who really doesn't know when to stop. Like, just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. So strong personalities is how they would both describe <laughs> very you, right? Much so, yeah, yes. yeah. so I really want to get into to your experience as an LGBTQ plus youth growing up in the system, because as we know, more youth identify as LGBTQ plus um, that are in foster care as opposed to youth out of foster care. So um, you came out at nine years old while in the foster care system. Can you describe how that experience was? I think my coming out story was definitely a little bit different than most. At the time, I was living with a foster family that we had a really rocky relationship. Um, and I think in a sense, it made my coming out a little bit easier. Um, I think leading up to it was probably a little more difficult. As a kid, I was very angry. Um, I was just very unhappy with how my life was going. And you know, I think that really manifested from a place of like hiding who I was. I knew from a very young age you know, for a fact that I was gay and it created a lot of anger. I was in and out of anger management and it was really one of those things that nothing fixed it. 
And so when I just when I came out at nine, I had made the decision to come out because I knew that that's where my root of all my anger was coming from. No, I think my anger also kind of just came from um, being so young. I didn't necessarily know how to express it. Um, and so I think that created a lot of anger was just the confusion within it. Yeah. So how was it then telling them? Um, it was rough. You know, they were, you know, I, I want to say they were supportive, but I, I don't think that's what it was. Um, I think it was more that they heard it and kind of just brushed it under the rug. Um, I think having had a rocky relationship with them, it made it a little bit easier in the sense that at the end of the day, didn't care all that much really what they thought. Um, but I definitely was a little bit upset to not have gotten that support in the way that I needed. Mm -hmm. So they were kind of just like non-reactive, mm -hmm. which you initially might have thought of as support, but then they weren't willing to have those conversations or help you get support. If it could have gone a different way, how would you have liked to see that go? And like, can you help us paint the picture of how that could have gone a lot better? Yeah, you know, um, it was one of those situations where I, I came out and then um, it was kind of just like brushed off. And I think what I really was looking for in that moment was... Um, not necessarily like exact understanding, but that empathy of, you know, I don't know exactly what you're going through, um, but I'm sure it's difficult and we're here to support you in whatever way we can. Um, you know, please tell us what that is. They were definitely very old fashioned and I think they didn't have a lot of experience with it. And that, that I didn't mind that. It was more that I felt like there was no effort to try. Um, and that was really what I wanted was I just wanted to see some effort into understanding where I was coming from and, you know, making a plan going forward as to what we could do next. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you said that um, growing up as gay made your life extra intense. How how has that played out or how did that play out? Yeah, you know, uh, that's a very heavy question. Um, you know, I think being a foster kid to begin with, it's hard. I think being an LGBT foster kid, it, it makes it three times as hard. You know, you already don't fit in. Um, it's already hard enough, you know, finding a family or getting along with your foster siblings when you're gay and you're open about it, it just makes it so much harder and you really have to hide it. it. It was a hard balance of going back and forth to being like, you know, this is who I am to, you know, I need somewhere to sleep. So let me hide it a little more, you know. Um, so I think that really made it a lot harder was it really just created a lot more barriers between me and foster parents and me and my foster siblings. And was there ever families that were just like, we can't deal with this. This is too much. Like you're you have to go somewhere else or. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, there were. My worker at the time, that was the very first thing that he ever told the foster family. Diamond's gay. Is that OK? Um, and so it, that was really hard. <laughs> it was just immediately being outed the moment I walked into a room. You know, that was what defined me because they felt the need to announce that first thing. Um, and there were, you know, there were families that showed, you know, outward just disapproval for it. And over time, yes, I think it definitely had a lot to do with me being moved um, because it just wasn't something that they felt comfortable dealing with. Mm. So maybe initially people would be like, oh, sure, that's fine. But mm -hmm. then when it came down to it, you feel like there really wasn't that acceptance. Yeah, no, I think, again, going back to the, it was kind of like the one and done thing of, you know, I hear it, but now we're going to pretend this never happened. Mm. So, mm -hmm. Which probably <laughs> then did that like increase your anger that you felt like you had? Because like not only do you not understand it, but then everyone around you is not understanding it. Kind of circling back, I think at that point, um, after I had come out and I was going through families, it wasn't so much anger. Coming out was a really captivating experience for me. It really released that anger. Um, and even to this day, anger is not necessarily a feeling that I, you know, have. Um, I definitely get annoyed. I definitely get irritated. But it's more that my emotions more come out in tears now. Because I think when those foster families did have that reaction, it was more that it just broke me down. 
because it was just that continual rejection and rejection and rejection for something that I, you know, had absolutely no control over. And I just wanted to be myself. Mm. You know, besides your final placement where you were adopted, is there other placements, like maybe a few that really stick out to you? I think out of all my placements, really the first one that comes to mind is I think it was, I was around the age of, I believe five. And I was living with another foster family in Colorado Springs. And she was just a foster home. She wasn't a foster to adopt home, but, you know, I could tell that she really cared. That doesn't come to say without that I did. Like, I tried to push her every button. Um, you know, I did everything in my power. Um, and she just wasn't having it. You know, she stuck around and she made it very clear that she was here. And for the first time, I had somewhat of a childhood. I went trick-or-treating and went to a public school and had birthday parties. And I really felt like a kid for one of the first times in my life. I was removed from the care of my biological parents at the age of two um, due to just many forms of abuse and neglect. My biological mom had suffered from a lot of mental health issues. She would be gone for weeks at a time. My biological father, he suffered from alcoholism and he, you know, was an undocumented immigrant from Honduras. And so he had gotten involved in a lot of things over there and that really just carried over. After two years of police reports, it was just decided that it was best that we went into the system. What was it like meeting your adoptive moms for the first time? And I know you met them separately yeah. at first. So what was that like? Um, <laughs> you know, it was an interesting experience. Um, so, you know, my mama, Amy, I had been attending some groups at a community center that she ran um, for a few months prior um, and had no idea. So, you know, when I found out, I was like, I know her. And my mom, Jessica, she, um, I had only met her once prior. She had came to pick up Amy um, and she had actually offered me a ride because where I was staying at, they were a little bit late. Um, and of course, my response was, I don't know you. I'm OK. <laughs> but, you know, when I found out that they both were interested in adopting me, it was a state of shock. You know, at that point, after, you know, 16 years, I had finally 15 years, I had finally just been like, you know, nobody wants to adopt a kid my age. I, I'm just going to focus on going out on my own. Um, and so I was hesitant did a lot of contemplating if I should just turn them down and continue to emancipate or accept that there's a family who wants me. Um, so it was really a state of shock. I was excited, um, but I was very nervous also. And did some of that nervousness come from how many other different placements? And like, what if this one doesn't work either? Or was it the thought of actually being part of a permanent family? Like kind of what were some of those hesitations? Because yeah. that makes sense. It was a huge mind shift for you to take. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it was a combination of those things. I had been in 35 to 40 placements prior. I had gotten really good at taking care of myself. Um, so, you know, giving up that and allowing someone else, to, you know, putting my life in someone else's hands, that was a big risk. What made you make the decision to move forward? I think a lot of people were like, oh, it's sunshine and butterflies. You know, when <laughs> you only. invite a kid into your home, you know, and the reality is, is like different personalities coming together, mm -hmm. different cultural backgrounds, different just like family ideas of family even coming together. If you could walk us through some of those early days as well. I think what ultimately led me to the decision of allowing them to adopt me was, I've always been a person who's not been shy to ask for help. As scary as it was to open myself up, to put my life in someone else's hands, I think I realized that I needed help. And I think I realized that they were genuine and they were in it for the right reasons. And it was okay after 15 years, even though I was almost an adult, it was okay to finally be a kid. And so I think that's really what, you know, helps me make the decision to give them a chance. You know, the early days, they were really rocky. I was adjusting to a lot. You know, I finally, you know, I had parents. I had a, my first dog. Um, I had my own room. You know, when I moved in, I think I had one suitcase full of things. You know, that was a 
really one of the biggest things that I think we butted heads on a lot was I was so used to having nothing. Um, and they just wanted to spoil me and they wanted me to have everything any other kid could have. That Christmas, they bought me a Christmas gift for every year they hadn't had me. Like, um, you know, they really wanted to make up for that and they wanted to give me that childhood in a short amount of time that I never really got to have. Um, and I think it scared me. I think that's what made our relationship so rocky is I was scared um, because I could feel the bond that was forming. And I knew that whether I liked it or not, those walls were going to come down. And I think it scared the crap out of me. And so naturally, I tried to start pushing them away, but it didn't work. What if you don't mind sharing, like, what are some of those ways you push them away? Because I think other foster parents listening, they'll probably be able to, like, let out a sigh of relief, you know, and be like, all right, it's not just me, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's really those, you know, verbal, physical, emotional boundaries that I think we put up storming out and the slamming doors and the, like, you're not my real parents and I don't need you. I've been on my own. Just those things that, you know, I think any kid says um, when they're upset to try and hurt their parents and the parents are like, they're just trying to hurt me. Um, and it, you know, it's not okay, <laughs> but you know, I think it was one of those things that I, I knew at the time that I was hurting and I was scared and I felt if, you know, I could hurt them and really scare them into thinking like, oh my God, what is this kid going to do? Then maybe I could sabotage it, but it didn't work. They've worked in the systems all of their life and they're like, no, we know better. But it was really more of those intentional things you say or those intentional things you do, like something as simple as, you know, I don't know, like breaking a bowl. Like that's my favorite bowl. Oops. Like. You know, those sorts of things that you do to try and push them away. And they essentially just like, I don't want to say they laughed at me like a child, but in a sense they did because that's what it was. Like it was very childlike behaviors that I was doing with the intent of pushing them away. But again, like I said, it, it didn't work. They're they're still here. <laughs> it sounds like they were able to realize, okay, this isn't something I need to take personally. Mm -mm. Right. This is just not even about me in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how would you describe each of your moms? Amy, I always tell her she's a multi-trick pony. She <laughs> she would have got her doctorate degree in psychology. She's worked with a lot of marginalized communities that I think even I myself would not be able to work with. She's a very driven person. She has a lot of patience. I have two little brothers now that we adopted. I could not be home with those two all day, um, but she does it. And she does it with the most patience that I've ever seen. And Jessica, I think she's a very strong, very bold woman. She's a COO. Um, and I always tell her, like, it's so amazing to see strong women in power. And I think she is. She's kind of a beacon for equality. She stands with everybody, fights for what she believes in, and represents it in an honest and respectful way. That's great. And so your two younger brothers, were they also in the system at one point? And, like, how old are they? Yeah, so AJ, he is now four as of Monday. Um, and Patty is two and a half. They were fortunate enough. Their time in the system was very short-lived. I think it created a lot of tension between us. Um, it was a hard adjustment, and I think it was more the internal jealousy of, I spent 15 years, why did you only get to spend one year? At the end of the day, I was very thankful they didn't go through what I did. You know, AJ was in the system. We got him at nine months, so I don't. AJ was probably in the system like six months. Um, and Patty, you know, we got him at a month, and he was only within a, in another foster home for, I think, about a week. Um, so, you know, their time in the system was very short-lived. Um, you know, they went through a lot in that short amount of time, unfortunately. But, you know, at the end of the day, they've been the biggest blessings in my life. Um, you know, when they're not screaming and they're not, you know, making messes, <laughs> they're a lot of fun to be around. And so did your time um, living with your moms overlap with them coming into the home? So I had that first year and then in 20. 18, I think is when we got AJ in December of that year. Um, and none of us were expecting it. We were out eating lunch at a, like a Chinese buffet. 
Um, and we got a call from our um, licensing agency and they offered us a nine month old. <laughs> and we were, of course, like, I don't know. Sure. Why not? Um, they told us, great, you have three days to prepare. Wow. <laughs> so okay. um, it was very in, kind of in the moment. But, you know, from the moment we got him, you know, I think I knew that me and AJ would be close. I used to hold him and sing to him. And then I think it was about nine months later, we got Patty. Um, they are brothers. Um, so bio mom had him next and she just told us, like, I want you to have him. Um, so we got him and, yeah, they were both adopted, you know, within that next time frame. Um, so, yeah, it was an adjustment. You know, AJ, I think I knew from the very beginning that he was going to be my little brother. Um, and Patty, it was a little bit rocky in the beginning, but I love him to death now. And I think it was more just like, you know, adjusting to AJ was like, okay. And then, you know, being like, great, I'm sharing my mom's again. Like it was just sort of that overprotective jealousy. I want my mom's all to myself, but it was something that I overcame and I'm definitely very happy to have little brothers now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a lot. It's a lot for any kid to go from being an only child, right. To having siblings, but you went basically within a very short period of time you went from not having a family and thinking you had to do this all on your own to having two moms and then to having two siblings like that's a lot how were you guys all able to navigate that because i'd imagine for any family that's like a lot of stress and a lot of different dynamics oh yeah it was really one of those things that we really you know found a way to balance time plenty of time with the kids plenty of time without time just one-on-one -on -one with them that i needed more of what it was is i was more afraid i think of losing them again um, I was afraid of losing somebody and being hurt again. And so we really found a way to be able to balance, um, you know, we're all going to do this as a family and then we're all going to do this with just you. And then we're just going to do this one-on-one. -on -one. And so it was really a lot of trial and error of being able to balance time alone versus with everybody, um, to make sure everybody felt like they were getting the time that they needed. Yeah. I can see that being really powerful. So you don't feel like you're like <laughs> pushed to the corners, right? right? With like the two <laughs> screaming children in yeah. the middle. You still matter. So in the beginning, you talked about how it was really rocky. You know, you definitely were trying to push them away because you probably thought, right, it's inevitable at some point that this this wouldn't work out. When was that turning point for you? Like, how long was it that you've been living with them? And what do you think it was that kind of made you just like be able to settle into it and let them take care of you? I really think it I think the turning point came on adoption day. So, you know, I moved in that March, that October I was adopted. And I think adoption day was really that finalization. You know, I cried. We all cried. Um, and I think it was because I like finally felt like it was real. Leading up to that point, I had had previous failed adoptions. And so I had felt like, you know, it wasn't real until I was legally their child. Um, and that doesn't go without saying they didn't try. That doesn't go without saying that they didn't show me that they were. You know, if there's one thing I'm thankful for is, you know, they've accepted me no matter what. You know, my my good and the bad and everything in between. They've let me be myself when I've been in public and people say things. I mean, they've defended me. Like, you know, at the end of the day, they've always been there. But I think for me, I really needed that legal documentation for it to be real. So that was really when I stopped. I think it, you know, came in waves. I think there were definitely days where I didn't feel the need to do it. I think there were days where I felt the need to do it three times as hard. Um, but I think adoption days really when I was like, I don't need to do it anymore. They're here and they're not going anywhere. And you know, we're all stuck with each other. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for better or worse, all stuck together. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. And I, I know too, like having teens in my home that are in the system, it can be so hard for them, like you were saying, to like let somebody else take care of you. Like you're used to doing everything on your own. 
oh, you definitely have this idea of like, I don't need anybody else because that's how you've been able to survive. You know, I can't imagine going to so many different homes. How did that kind of shift for you too? Was it the adoption? You're like, okay, this is part of a family, but I'd imagine, you know, you guys kind of all to come together and agree on like, okay, what is family look like for us, right? Like how, how did that kind of play out? I mean, I think for starters, we're not your traditional family. I mean, it's not every day that, you know, two lesbians adopt a gay kid. (laughs) There was a part of me that wanted to release the majority of my independence, but I needed some of that still. And I think it's that natural instinct to need control. Um, And so we really sat down and we decided, you know, like, these are the parts of our life that we are your parents in. And then there were definitely parts where I was like, you know what? These are parts that you can handle on your own. Discipline was obviously their choice. But I think really where they really gave me that independence was they didn't tell me no. Like, I got to make my own choices, but they also made it very clear I was going to suffer those consequences. Can you walk us through a few of those? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, of course. I think a good example, um, you know, when I moved in, I got adopted. Um, You know, I finally felt like I could be out and proud um, and I wanted to start dating. They really just kind of left the door open. They said, we want you to make smart choices. These are the things you need to do to do that. Um, But we're really not going to restrict your dating. And looking back, (laughs) I dated a few questionable people. And, you know, I definitely got my heart broken. I got involved in some things that, you know, thankfully eventually just like ended. But it was a lot to deal with in the moment. And, you know, they were there to support me through it. Um, But I think that was one of those biggest lessons I really learned for myself was... Um, You know, they were like, you know what, we're going to give you the freedom to do as you please, but you're going to suffer the consequences. And that was really, I think, a natural consequence that I learned was, you know, you open yourself up to sketchy people, you're going to run into sketchy things. And so after that, I really didn't do that. (laughs) I think dating is a hot topic for a lot of parents. Um, And I think it's natural to want to protect your kids and, you know, shelter them from everything. My parents looked at it as, is you're going to do it regardless. So we're going to let you do this. And when you see what happens, you're going to not do it. And I didn't. I learned my lesson and I'm definitely a lot more careful of the people that I date now. (laughs) But that was just, I think that was really one of the, that was a really big moment for me as I felt like, you know, unlike most parents who I've seen who, um, and not that it's bad, you know, I think that it's natural for parents to want to protect and to be a little overbearing. But, you know, my parents definitely acknowledged that and said, you know what, we're going to let you date freely. Um, And I think that was one of those moments where I felt like they truly trusted me um, to make my own decisions, but to suffer the consequences. But at the end of the day, you know, I suffered those consequences, but they were also there to support me. Um, and they were there to tell me, I told you so. So, you know, it, it came, with it came back, doubts, it came back right? full circle. <laughs> yeah. You know, after you had been living with them and then you're like, okay, now I'm ready to date. I'm out and I'm proud. Having, you know, them had to go through that journey of them, you know, coming out and then, you know, finding their partner and all of that. Did that help a lot? How was that living with people who had been through that? I think it definitely helped. I didn't feel so alone. You know, that was really why I had started going to that group where I first met Amy was I felt like there wasn't a lot of people that I really could connect with on that level. I had two people who loved me unconditionally who understood exactly what I was going through. They knew what it was like to be to come out. They knew what it was like to be, you know, LGBT. And they were just really knowledgeable about a lot of things. I always tell people, you know, being LGBT is a journey and it's a continual one. Things change. Um, And having somebody there who's really knowledgeable about it all was really helpful in my self-exploration. In your time at their home, did you kind of like experiment with like what that meant for you, like try out different things? I really did. 
You know, when I moved into their home, I think that, you know, I had a, you know, relatively masculine wardrobe. I don't like using that word because I don't necessarily believe in those sorts of norms and terms. But you know, I think in a societal sense, I had a very masculine wardrobe. I think they definitely helped me, um, you know, kind of move into the whole um, of not really putting a label on it. I am who I am. They were there. You know, when I wanted to wear six inch stilettos, they supported me. When I wanted, you know, to walk around in ball gowns, they were there to support me. When I became a pageant drag queen, they were at every single show. They were definitely there in the moments where I was like, I don't know what to call this. You know, they were there to say, why do you feel the need to call it something? Why can't you just be Diamond? Why do you need something to describe what you're doing or what you believe in? This season of Just as Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So, Natasha, foster parenting is no walk in the park. But what do you think is one thing that makes it a lot easier? A home coordinator, hands down, is my answer. And I actually got the chance to sit down with my own home coordinator, Nicole Barnett, from Kids Crossing. And she shared how Kids Crossing supports their foster families. I absolutely love my job, the people that I work with, and the culture that we have at Kids Crossing. We are not just a child placement agency. We are so much more. You develop this relationship with your families and really get to know them on a deeper level, and you become almost an extension of the family. And you very much feel that coming from Kids Crossing as well. The support that, that Kids Crossing gives to families is more than just oh, here, I'm going to, you know, make sure you're following the rules and we're going to file this paperwork. And great, we placed a kid in your home. It, you know, around the holidays, we will do a huge holiday party and we will get, make sure that kids are getting gifts and make sure the family is supported as well. Um, this last year with COVID was pretty rough. And so we were sending like Grubhub gift cards. We were sending care packages from Amazon with arts and crafts and coloring books or puzzles or games to families to trying to find things that maybe didn't need a lot of parental support or supervision where the kids could just do it on their own to hopefully give a break. We support our families in so many ways throughout the year. When a family gets a placement, if they need assistance with clothing or shoes or anything like that, we have had so many amazing donors that have given us items that we can then pass along to the family. Clothing, like all of that stuff adds up. And so whatever we can do to help support our families, Kids Crossing is doing. Wow, that's truly a lot. I can see how that all adds up. Right. And I can tell you from personal experience that Kids Crossing is truly supportive of their foster parents as well as diverse foster families. So what are you waiting for? Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado in Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just as special sent you. There's such a difference to right between tolerance and acceptance. And it sounds like in some of the other homes, you weren't even getting tolerance. But at best, maybe you were just getting tolerance. Like, okay, that, that's a thing. Whatever, we're going to pretend it's not there. And it sounds like in this home, you were able to just really blossom into that acceptance, right? I've always joked that I think our family overshares a little bit too much. Um, but that's just because we've I've never felt uncomfortable bringing things up. You know, subjects that are considered taboo in other homes or in general society are not in our home. 
Um, you know, I always tell people, if you want to come over for dinner, just be prepared to talk about things you wouldn't normally talk about at the dinner table because we're just a very open and communicative family. And I think that has really created a strong sense of trust. But, you know, like I said, they truly came at a point in my life where I was, I had given up. I was like, you know what, like nobody wants me and it is what it is. And then they came into my life. Um, you know, even after they did the full disclosure, God knows I was a interesting child. <laughs> you know, they still wanted me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds so powerful too, especially since, you know, a lot of times when there is adoptions, it's just totally different perspectives and backgrounds all coming together into this melting pot. Yeah, I mean, we've covered it a little bit, but if there's anything else you have to add of like how was living with your moms different than living with all the other placements that you had? They'll probably never forgive me for saying this, but they're both in their 40s and 50s, so they have a lot of life experience. And so I think they really have that experience and they were prepared going into this. Um, And I think they really had a realistic expectation of how this was going to go. And I think it definitely set our family up for a little more success and less tribulation. Because I think that, like you said, I think that people think that it's easy and it's not. Um, And it wasn't easy for me, even as a child. But I think that, you know, we all knew that we were meant to be um, and we were willing to work at it. I think, obviously, I think the biggest difference is I had that, you know, 100% authentic acceptance. I mean, yeah, I mean... Like I said, you know, I think throughout my life I was tolerated at best. I think there were definitely times where I wasn't even tolerated. Um, And, you know, I've never felt tolerated. I've always felt truthfully accepted. You know, I mean, like I said, I'm a pageant drag queen. You know, I won the title of Miss Gay Colorado Springs of 2018. And, you know, in the front row when I won was my mother's and my uncle's. Our family has been, you know, truly supportive. You know, I tell people, people always complain about having to meet, you know, like their spouse's family. But imagine being a kid, you know, moving into a new home and having to meet, you know, 50, 75, 100 family members um, and calling them auntie and cousin. And, you know, it's one of the most nerve wracking experiences possible. But I, I never felt, you know, really that nervous. One of my aunts, I always tell people, you know, one of the very the first time I met her, I went to her wedding. She was getting married and I wore white, <laughs> not knowing any better. And unlike most brides, she'd get mad. She was like, we need to take a picture because this is going to look real good together. (laughs) Like, you know, um, so, you know, I think it's just been different in the sense that I felt free. I felt accepted and I felt like, you know, no matter what, you know, no matter what mistake I make um, or, you know, no matter how exciting the accomplishment is, I can call my mom and, you know, they're either there to celebrate with me or they're there to help me work through it and figure out what to do next. That's really beautiful that the whole family came around and embraced you, too. Yeah. And then we touched on this, too. But if you have anything else to add of like, how did your mothers help you blossom into the adult that you are today? I think they have everything to do with who I am today. I think I felt very lost when I moved in because I had been trying to navigate this balance of being out while trying to not sabotage having somewhere to live with people. I think at foster care, I really felt like I had to minimize who I was to be able to make sure I could stay somewhere. Um, so, you know, at that point when I moved in and I got adopted, I really got to a point where I was like, you know, I need to explore. I need to figure out who I am, what I want to wear, you know, what I want to call myself, what I want to do. My senior year in high school, I was living with them. Um, and I went to a lot of proms that year. They were there to support me. And, you know, at every single one, I wanted to wear a gown. If they got any backlash from the school, they pursued it. Like, no, this is their right. They truthfully were there to fight for me. And I think that that was a new experience, was having somebody who was there to fight for me no matter what. So, yeah, beyond just them being like, you know, our home is a place for you to figure out who you are. 
they would go to bat for you mm-hmm. other yeah. places. That's big. Yeah, I mean that, you know, and that was the thing is it extended from home out into the community. I remember one time we took a trip to Oklahoma to see family. And, you know, anybody who knows Oklahoma, it's relatively conservative. Um, and we were going through Kansas and stopped at a Brahms to go to the bathroom. And, you know, I'm wearing a dress at this point And, you know, <laughs> this little girl is just staring me down. And, you know, I, I didn't notice, you know, at that point, I really got good at not really caring what random people thought. You know, I really, I think, secretly start to enjoy the attention that I received. But, you know, I didn't even notice that my mom, her, you know, being a little girl, she's like, you know, I'm going to be respectful, but she just stared the little girl down. <laughs> like, you know, like those sorts of things. Like, um, that's the biggest thing I think my moms have taught me is there are ways to advocate for yourself and there are ways to fight without actually fighting. Um, you know, sometimes your facial expressions, you know, your words, they can make a bigger impact than anything else would. So, you know, I think that was really the biggest difference between their home and any others was not only did they give me a place to blossom, they supported me in the community and they sh- they gave me ways, um, you know, to stand up for myself and fight for myself without getting myself in trouble. Yeah. And do you think that that came a lot from them having to do that for themselves and like for their relationship too with each other? Because, yeah, some areas still, you know, if it's two women holding hands, you'll get like the sideways glance and all of that. To this day, my mom still won't hold hands in Oklahoma. And it breaks my heart that there are still places like that where people feel the need that they can't show love to each other. I think it comes from personal experience. And I think that's really where they've really pushed me. I don't care where I'm at. If I'm in Oklahoma, I'll parade around in my six inch stilettos. Um, And I think they really have helped me with that. I think they've acknowledged that. I have the confidence to do that and they want me to do that. Anybody can be a big support and that's great. But I think to have that extra, like I, they know what I'm going through. I think it makes a little bit bigger of a difference. Yeah. That's really cool hearing that because like, you know, they, they don't feel comfortable holding hands in Oklahoma, but then you're comfortable wearing your heels there. So it sounds like they've even helped you take a step further than maybe they could in some ways. I think that as humans, we have to acknowledge where our boundaries are at. And I think they've acknowledged that that's a boundary that maybe they're not quite ready for. Um, but I think they've also seen that they know that I have that confidence. You know, I, I think I'm very fortunate in the sense that already being, you know, six foot tall in a pair of six inch stilettos, I'm like six, six. It's nine times out of 10, people don't say anything at all. Right. <laughs> They're like, they can be used as weapons, right? Yeah. But I think That's that, funny. you know, my mom's acknowledged those limitations that they have that maybe they're not quite ready for that, but that's okay. But they see that I have that potential and they're going to make sure I live up to it. So I think, yeah, I think it's a balance. I think as humans, we have to really acknowledge our boundaries, um, but also kind of help people thrive where we know they thrive best. That's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, I was just looking at it from one angle, but you're right. People have different boundaries and it sounds like they really instilled in you to like honor that and other people and recognize that. And then it sounds like they were able to do that for you, too, and push you in ways that they knew you could be pushed and it was healthy for you. Can you explain how adoption is for life? People are like, you got adopted at 17, but you were turning 18 in a year. What's the point of that? Well, adoption isn't just for you to be 18. Um, you know, just like any other kid, you know, your kid turns 18. You're not like, I'm not your parent anymore. Good luck. Like, that's not, you know, how parenting works. So it was really one of those things that it is. It's for life. Um, you know, it's for the good and the bad and everything in between. Um, you know, it's, you know, for when you move out. It's for if you need to move back home. You know, God knows I've done that a few times. Everybody needs support. And it is, you know, I, we try, you know, I'm an, I'm adopted, you know, that was something that we had actually worked with somebody we knew on because everywhere they went, they're like, this is my adoptive kid. And we're like, no, that's, you know, that's not what you do. <laughs> they're your kid. Um, and so, you know, that's really the thing is for us, like I was adopted, but you know, I am their kid. My little brothers are their kids. 
and so it's for life. I mean, it's just like any other family. You know, when I'm 36 and, um, you know, <laughs> I, I I need somewhere to go, that's what, where my moms are for. When I want to go home for the holidays, that's where I go. You know, so it, I think it really, I think that, yeah, it's that's a good question because I think people think of adoption as like this, like, oh, just until they're 18, but it's not. It's forever. Yeah. And um, so what does your relationship look like now with them? I think just like every other 18 year old, when I had turned 18, I was like, I'm an adult. I'll do whatever I want. I'm going out of my own. And I very quickly realized that's not realistic. You know, I tried, but I moved back home. How long were you gone for? Oh, I was gone about a year. And after that, I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, I was moving back because I had had a relationship fail. And it, I was very down at that point. Um, and, you know, not having to worry about where I was going to go, just knowing that I could pack my car and go home was definitely a huge relief. And knowing that, you know, the people that you're going back to understand are there to support you, not judge you, um, I think it makes it even greater. Our relationship now, I think it's better. I think that in my early... 18 year old years I was very much that 18 year old like I can do this I don't need my parents like and I've grown out of that I think you know now that I'm you know in my 20s you know it's one of those things that I've acknowledged like I do need my parents and that's what they're there for and so I think we're closer you know I think um in the beginning things were rocky then things got better when I got adopted but then I turned 18 and things got rocky again um and now we're back in a good stage and I think it was, yeah, like I said, just kind of acknowledging that, you know, I'm an adult, but it's okay to need my parents, you know, and I think we're kind of in that stage of like supporting each other and we're here to support each other, help out in any, any way we can. Like this is a place you can go to and be your real self, it sounds like, and be like really open and honest and not have to worry about like trying to be somebody or not. Yeah. Mm, that's huge. Yeah. Some people never get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there another big moment in your life that we haven't discussed yet that you feel like really shaped you into the person that you are today? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, the one that really resonates with me is, you know, actually relatively recent. Um, you know, I think it was really the moment where I realized that I wanted to found Hope for Colorado. It was a very quick process that moved very quickly. I had been working at an organization for about almost five years. Um, I had been working with people who were living with HIV and AIDS. And it got to a point where I was passionate about it, but it wasn't something that I felt that I wanted to do until the day I died. Um, and so I really sat down and I thought about it and I said, you know what? I spent 15 years in foster care. I want to use that for something. And I started doing research and I started thinking about it. I said, there's so many organizations that get kids adopted. There's so many organizations that reunite families. You know, if mom's not able to take care of them, let's send them with auntie. Um, but I was like, what about, you know, the 400,000 kids who age out every single year? Like I was crazed. I, I mean, I broke down. I was heartbroken. I, I just, I couldn't even picture it. Um, you know, personally, you know, I've had tons of former foster siblings, um, you know, either pass away, go to prison, um, when they aged out. Um, and so it was really one of those things that I say, you know what, this is what I want to do. Like, I will no longer sit back and watch this happen. And I felt this sense of excitement that I think I've never felt in my life. And, you know, I've been excited about things in life, but it was just a new sort of excitement. And, you know, as I saw things fall into play, you know, forming my board of directors, um, you know, offering positions to people, you know, really shaping the way of the organization. You know, I think that was really a big impact in my life was I finally felt, you know, after years and years of my lifetime of, you know, just kind of like riding the wave and seeing where it went, I finally felt like I had a strong direction I was heading. And so I think that was a big moment in my life was the moment I realized that I wanted to start Hope for Colorado and I wanted to really, um, you know, bridge that gap between foster youth and the adult world. Yeah. And it sounds like, too, that's a moment that really integrated your whole self, right? Your your past, 
and your present and your future. So if you could tell, I don't know, like 10 or 12 year old Diamond some stuff, <laughs> what, what would you go back and say? <laughs> man, you know, 10, 12 year old Diamond. You know, um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest things I probably tell myself is don't be so damn stubborn. <laughs> I think, you know, I think my stubbornness and my hardheadedness has definitely put myself through a lot more <laughs> extra things. But, you know, I think I'd also tell them, like, you know, when people tell you it's going to get better, they're not lying. You know, it's the truth. You know, there were definitely times, you know, when I was 10 or 12 where I felt like things were only going to continue the way they were. You know, and I think that's the biggest thing is I tell them is, you know, things do get better. You know, you found you will find a family, you know, you're going to start a nonprofit. And, you know, I think that that was really the biggest thing that I think I would tell myself is, yeah, like I said, don't be so stubborn and trust people when they say it gets better because it sounds like a cheesy cliche. I mean, even to this day, sometimes I'm like, wow, that sounds so cheesy, but it's the truth, you know, um, and I think it really goes back to that whole hope piece of, you know, you know, when people say it gets better, it's that hope, you know, is, you know, hope that it will and it will because, you know, it may not happen now. It may not happen a month from now, but it will happen um, and it may not be in the way that you expect it either, but some sort of way you'll come out the other end and you'll come out the other end better. So, yeah. Is there anything different that you would tell like another kid in foster care who identifies as LGBTQ? You know, I think my biggest regret in foster care was really, um, like I said, running that balance of being myself, but also hiding it. So I had a home, you know, I think the only thing I would tell them is don't hide it, you know, be yourself wholeheartedly and you'll find a foster family that will accept you. My sort of indecisiveness and my lack of confidence in who I was, I think it only made it harder. Um, and I think had I just been, you know, completely like, this is me, this is who I am, deal with it. I think that, you know, I would have avoided a lot of families that I think create a lot of heartache because my uncertainty, I think, gave them hope that I would be straight. <laughs> um, wow. And so I think that like, had I just been like, this is who I am, deal with it. I think they would have been like, mm, I'm okay. And then I would have moved on to another family. And I think I would have eventually found one that would have accepted me wholeheartedly. And who knows, maybe one of those families who tolerated me wanted to accept me, but because I was so insecure in who I was, they weren't sure how to do that. Just be yourself wholeheartedly because, you know, people who accept you will flock towards you and people who don't will run away. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What advice do you have for other foster parents who maybe they do identify as LGBTQ, maybe they don't, but they have a kid in their home who does? It doesn't take a superhero. You know, I think people have this idea in their mind of, you know, you have to be rich or you have to be, you know, super knowledgeable about everything or you have to be perfect. And, you know, actually, it's the quite opposite. As foster youth, we want somebody who we can connect with. We're never going to connect with, you know, the super rich, super perfect person because that's not who we are. Being your authentic self is going to be best. And I think on top of that, I think, you know, specifically with the LGBT piece, it doesn't matter if you're LGBT or not. Some of my greatest friends are allies, people who don't identify as LGBT, but who support us. You know, people who, you know, may not be super knowledgeable about it, but they do the support. They do the research to start to understand things. I tell people it's OK to ask questions. We'd rather you ask than just assume something about us. So that's really the biggest piece of information I would give people is, like I said, you don't have to know everything about it. You just have to be willing to try because that's all that we ask. And that's all that, you know, we need. Um, you know, like I said, being a foster kid is terrifying enough. And being an LGBT foster kid is even harder. And as long as you're showing them that you're trying and that you generally care and you want to learn, then that's all that they will need. I 
I appreciate Diamond's openness in sharing his journey to becoming his true authentic self. I think that we as volunteers, foster parents, or even supporters of kids in care should create a dynamic to allow children to be their full authentic self. I couldn't have said it better myself, Rachel. And Diamond had so many amazing things to share that we actually couldn't fit it all in one episode. So in two weeks, we're going to bring you part two of our conversation with Diamond, where we talk about how he literally had to unpack some of his survival mechanisms. I can't wait to share that episode with you all. But for today, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening and special thanks to our guest, Diamond Kobolinski. To learn more about Diamond and Hope for Colorado, visit our website, justaspecial.com. So we love hearing from our listeners and Kelsey reached out to us on Instagram to say that she was, quote, listening to your podcast for the first time. And oh my gosh, I feel like I have been wishing for something like this for so long. Most podcasts I've found on the subject of foster care center their parents or are problematic for a variety of reasons. It meant so much to turn just a special on and immediately hear Savior Complex getting called out. Thank you, Kelsey. And if you haven't already, go back and listen to our first episode that Kelsey is talking about called Sassy as Hell and Haunted by a Microwave. Please let us know what you thought of today's episode at justaspecial.com or reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram at justaspecial. We're so thankful for our community of supporters that makes Justice Special possible. This season of Justice Special is brought to you by Kids Crossing, a private foster care agency created by foster parents for foster parents. So Rachel, I've mentioned before on our podcast what an amazing support our home coordinator, Nicole Barnett, has been to my family on our foster care journey. Yes, tell us a little bit more. What does that look like for you all? Well, Nicole and I actually got the chance to sit down and chat about her role. So I'll let you hear from Nicole herself. So my role as a home coordinator, it can be so many things. I wear many hats. Part of my job is to make sure that the foster parents are following state and county rules. Also to be a support. So be that shoulder to cry on, be the sounding board when foster care gets really rough, which it does, um, when the kids are making me crazy, or even just be there to encourage and support in whatever way I can, letting you know you guys are doing an amazing job. Filing all the fun paperwork, keeping files on the kids, finding those resources for kids when they need certain and specific things, whether it's therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, and extracurriculars too. That's important as a kid to have sports to play or gymnastics or arts and crafts, things like that. I think the big thing that resonates with me is So our founder, Jan, something her and her husband would say was, keep your eye on the child if everything else will fall into place. And that is kind of how I see my role is you as the foster parent, keep your eye on the kid and I will make sure everything else is covered. It's great to hear that we have people like Nicole supporting kids in care and their families. I couldn't agree more with you. And Nicole has even physically shown up at our home during difficult times. And she's just been an incredible support. Kids Crossing has four locations across Colorado and Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo, and La Junta. Learn more at kidscrossing.com and tell them just a special sent you.